continuing with uh, chapter 18, um, the third one on stream entry, Sotapanna, the spiritual turning point. And uh, so we are <coughs> continuing with Ajahn Pasna's narrative here. Having established oneself in the Noble Eightfold Path, as described by Sariputta uh, earlier on in chapter 16, and entered the stream, the knot of clinging to the fetters unravels. The Sotapanna is steeped in this path, lives according to it, and is unwavering in commitment to it. The path begins with the elements of wisdom, that is, right view and right intention, samaditi and samasankapo. And here would be a good opportunity to bring forward some examples of this commitment in order to illustrate how the wisdom aspects are, are a result of entering the stream. So there's a couple of uh, passages, both from the uh, Sangyuta Nikaya. These are both from the Magga Sangyuta, the connected discourses about the, the, uh, the path. Because suppose there were a seafaring ship bound with rigging that had been worn out in the water for six months. It would be hauled up on dry land during the cold season and its rigging would further be attacked by wind and sun. Inundated by rain from a rain cloud, the rigging would easily collapse and rot away. So too, when a bhikkhu develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path, his fetters easily collapse and rot away. How is this so? Here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu develops right view, uh, right intention, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right concentration, which is based upon seclusion, viveka, dispassion, viraga, cessation, niroda, and maturing in release, vosagga. It is in this way, because that a bhikkhu develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path so that his fetters easily collapse and rot away. And then the next sutta, uh, again from the same section, because suppose there is a guest house. People come from the east, west, north and south and lodge there. Katyas, Brahmins, Vaisas and Suddhas. So the warrior nobles, Brahmins, uh, the merchants and the uh, artisans come and lodge there. So too, when a bhikkhu develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path, he fully understands by direct knowledge those things that are to be fully understood by direct knowledge. He abandons by direct knowledge those things that are to be abandoned by direct knowledge. He realizes by direct knowledge those things that are to be realized by direct knowledge. And he develops by direct knowledge those things that are to be developed by direct knowledge. So you have four things there. So you have <coughs> understanding, abandoning, realizing, and developing. So those are the four different uh, modes. And what bhikkhus are the things to be fully understood by direct knowledge? It should be said, the five aggregates subject to clinging. What five? The form aggregate subject to clinging. Feeling, perception, mental formations. The consciousness aggregate subject to clinging. These are the things to be fully understood by direct knowledge. And what bhikkhus are the things to be abandoned by direct knowledge? Ignorance, avicca, and craving for existence, bhava-tanha. These are the things to be abandoned by direct knowledge. And what because of the things to be realized by direct knowledge? True knowledge and liberation. So that's vijja and vimuti. These are the things to be realized by direct knowledge. And what because of the things to be developed by direct knowledge? Serenity and insight. Samatha and vipassana. These are the things to be developed by direct knowledge. And how is it because that when a bhikkhu develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path, he fully understands by direct knowledge those things that are, that are to be fully understood by direct knowledge, and he develops by direct knowledge those things that are to be developed by direct knowledge. Here, because a bhikkhu develops right view, right, uh, right intention, right uh, speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right concentration, sorry, right effort, right uh, mindfulness, right concentration, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. It is in this way because that a bhikkhu develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path so that he fully understands by direct knowledge those things that are to be fully understood by direct knowledge, to be, <coughs> to be abandoned, to be developed, and to be realized. 
He develops by direct knowledge those things that are to be developed by direct knowledge. So those um, uh, uh, in the, those uh, teachings, first of all, the image of the the, um, the rigging on the ship just sort of being rotted away by the wind and the sun and the the rain that uh, are the uh, uh, as a ship up on the on the beach. Uh, you can imagine that the fetters rotting and falling away. This is the the rigging on the on the kind of beached ship. But uh, in the second uh, sutta, then you have these. Uh, different ways of handling the different aspects. Uh, so you have the five aggregates, the uh, body and mind, to be <coughs> to be fully understood. So like to know what body and mind are, the nama and rupa, and then uh, what's to be um, what's to be abandoned. So avicca and bhava tanha, so ignorance and craving, are to be abandoned. Things to be realized, uh, uh, vijja and vimuti. Uh, uh, true knowledge and liberation, uh, and then the last one, what's to be developed, serenity and insight. So you have these four different aspects, and uh, the, uh, the, um, there are various different places, particularly in the Sabhasava Sutta, the, the second discourse in the Majjhima Nikaya, where the Buddha talks about the, the different ways of handling the different sort of aspects of, uh, of mind, and the, the, uh, it's not as though every... Uh, uh, every uh, as- aspect of our experience has to be handled in the same way, but there's different modes. Just like in the kitchen, you have uh, <coughs> you you use a knife to chop carrots with you, know, you uh, and that you say that you uh, you have a um, a sieve to to sieve the um, uh, you know, the the rice with. You don't use a you don't use a sieve to cut carrots. You don't use a knife to um, to sieve the rice, you have a different tool for a different task, a different, uh, and, and so that then these particular uh, aspects of our of the mind. So that you have nama and rupa, uh, five khandas to be to be understood, to be appreciated. Then what, uh, what's to be abandoned? The, the things that are, that are harmful, ignorance and craving. Then uh, what's to be understood? What's to be realized? To, what's the, the goal of the, the path? Is true knowledge and liberation. And then the means whereby that's that's brought about um, is uh, uh, the uh, in a way the methodology is samatha and vipassana. So these also map on to the four noble truths. So you have dukkha is to be understood, uh, idang, you know, that parinyayanti dukkha is to be understood, and then the um, <clears throat> I'm not sure if the act, the Pali lines up 100, percent but they they seem to match quite quite closely. So that Dukkha is to be understood as the first noble truth. The second one, the craving, is to be uh, abandoned, pahatabhanti. Then what's to be realized, sachikatabhanti, uh, true knowledge and liberation. And then uh, what's to be developed, bhavetabhanti, uh, uh, as we chant very regularly in the uh, Dhammachaka Sutta, is uh, samatha and vipassana. So it's a kind of in, uh, it's one of those ways, uh, one of the instances where you can take one particular set of the teachings and map them on to another. So you have um, rather than dukkha being understood, you have the five khandas being understood. Rather than just tan, uh, tanha being uh, 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 being let go of, then you have um, uh, ignorance and uh, bhava tanha being particularly named. Then um, the goal of the path, rather than dukkha niroda, is named instead as true knowledge and liberation, vijja and vimuti. And then, lastly, what's to be developed, rather than saying the eightfold path, what's to be developed is samatha and vipassana. Yeah. So that that uh, is a, uh, a an interesting uh, instance where you have the, the Buddha picking up similar kind of a similar framework, but using a like a, a, a slightly different format, rather like in the Teaching to Rohitasa that we quoted a few times, where he says, um, "This is the. It's within this this fathom long body, this with its thoughts and its feelings, its perceptions and its and its thoughts. There is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So again, you got the four noble truth pattern, but but using the the imagery of the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and so on. There's also a, a similar a resonance." In another of the discourses in the middle-length sayings, the Majjhima Nikaya, the greater discourse of questions and answers, so that's the dialogue between Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahakotita, I think, 
Um, and uh, uh, his Venerable Sariputta is talking about the, the five khandhas, and, uh, and uh, Mahakutita is asked, uh, perce- uh, feeling, perception, and consciousness, are they conjoined or are they disjoined? Are they separate things or are they connected? And then Venerable Sariputta says they are conjoined, they are, they are not disjoined, because that which we feel, we perceive, that which we perceive, we cognize. So you, you can't entirely divide them up from each other. But then he makes the, the being Venerable Sariputta, he's very precise, and so he makes this particular point saying, but uh, there is a difference between consciousness, <coughs> so in, in understanding or, or um, uh, in, in reflecting on those things, he said, um, there, and talking about the development of wisdom, he says, there is a difference between wisdom and consciousness. Uh, wisdom is to be uh, developed, consciousness is to be understood. So if you want to look that up yourself, that's in uh, Sutta number 43, that's the Mahavedala Sutta uh, in, the, in the Middle Length Discourses. So the wisdom is to be developed, consciousness is to be fully understood. The following sutta is somewhat similar to previous ones. Its primary distinction is its description of the Sotapanna as one who lives with refuges in the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, firmly established, but has generosity as the other defining characteristic intrinsic within the heart. So rather than talking, talking about sila, it talks about uh, generosity. The sutta starts with the Buddha in conversation with some chamberlains who have proclaimed their devotion to him, as well as their sadness at seeing him leave for a walking tour uh, and their gladness at his return. A discussion of the difficulties of living in the world then ensues. So a chamberlain is someone who works in the palace, sort of making everything work, um, sort of looking after all the arrangements and ceremonies and the kind of um, uh, household manager types. It's one who looks after the the kind of uh, practical details of, of life in the palace. So the Chamberlains, and this comes from um, Sangyutanikaya, this is from the Sotapati, uh, the connected discourses about stream entry. There's a few fairly long passages in this this, uh, chapter, so there'll be some long quotations here. The Chamberlains, Isidatta and Purana, paid homage to the Blessed One, sat down to one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, when we hear that the Blessed One will set out from Savati on tour among the coastlands, on that occasion there arises in us distress and displeasure at the thought. The Blessed One will be far away from us. Then, when we hear that the Blessed One has set out from Savati on tour among the coastlands, on that occasion there arises distress and displeasure at the thought. The Blessed One is far away from us. But, Venerable Sir, when we hear that the Blessed One will set out from among the Magadans on, cor- on tour in the Cassian country, on that occasion there arises in us elation and joy at the thought, ah, the Blessed One will be near us. Then the Buddha responds, Therefore, Chamberlains, uh, the household life is a confinement, a path of dust. The going forth is like the open air. It is enough for you, Chamberlains, to be diligent. Which is a nice, uh, polite way of saying, you know, your householders are tied up with your... Uh, your um, mundane concerns and uh, you should uh, rather than getting so wrapped up it's good for you to be diligent with your practice and not get so um, say entangled uh, confined and then they, they respond by saying venerable sir we are subject to another confinement even more confining and considered more confining than the former one and the buddha asks but what chamberlains is that other confinement to which you are subject which is even more confining and considered more confining than the former one so along with their, their general duties and their sort of worry about him coming and going and not being around, then he's saying, so what else is it that's, that's causing this feeling of confinement or limitation in your mind, your minds? Here, Venerable Sir, when King Pasenadi of Kosala wants to make an excursion to his pleasure garden, after we have prepared his riding elephants, we have to place the king's dear and beloved wives on their seats, one in front and one behind. Now, Venerable Sir, the scent of those ladies is just like that of a perfumed casket briefly opened. So it is with the royal ladies wearing scent. Also, Venerable Sir, the bodily touch of those ladies is just like that of a tuft of cotton wool or capoc. So it is with the royal ladies so delicately nurtured. Now, on that occasion, Venerable Sir, the elephants must be guarded and those ladies must be guarded, and we ourselves must be guarded. Yet we do not recall giving rise to an evil state of mind in regard to those ladies." 
This venerable sir is that other confinement to which we are subject, which is even more confining and considered more confining than the former one. And the Buddha responds by saying, Therefore, Chamberlains, the household life is a confinement, a path of dust. The going forth is like the open air. It is enough for you, Chamberlains, to be diligent. The noble disciple, Chamberlains, who possesses four things, is a stream-enterer no longer bound to the nether world, fixed in destiny, with enlightenment as his destination. What for? Here, Chamberlains, a noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha. Thus, the Blessed One is enlightened, uh, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed one. He possesses confirmed confidence in the Dhamma, in the Sangha. He dwells at home with a mind devoid of the stain of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, one devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. A noble disciple who possesses these four things is a stream-enterer, no longer bound to the netherworld, fixed in destiny, with enlightenment as his destination. Chamberlains, you possess confirmed confidence in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha. Moreover, whatever there is in your family that is suitable for giving, all that you share unreservedly among those who are virtuous and of good character. What do you think, carpenters? And why he says carpenters there, I do not know. <laughs> I looked it up and it definitely says carpenters. Maybe it was an affectionate way to talk to the household managers, I don't know, but... Uh, he says, what do you think, carpenters? How many people are there among the coastlands who are your equals, that is, in regard to giving and sharing? It is a gain for us, Venerable Sir, it is well gained for us, uh, venerable, by us, Venerable Sir, that the Blessed One understands us so well. So that's an interesting little interlude. So they're saying, well, we have these other you know, restrictions and duties, and, uh, but also the fact that they're very devoted to that and they're giving their time, their attention, their care, um, to trying to do their jobs in the palace uh, in, in, a, uh, in a good and appropriate way. And the Buddha picks that up and then talks about that as a kind of generosity, that, that, that doing your duty is also a kind of, um, uh, is a, a, a sila. It's a, it's a, a practice of, of uh, virtue. It's like a, say, um, uh, a way in which you are, you're giving your time, your attention, your care to, to the, the job that it's your responsibility to do. And that's also, um, it was a, a, a point that um, uh, Lumpur Panyananda, uh, when uh, Lumpur Cha became ill and had his, had his stroke and couldn't travel or couldn't teach anymore, then Lumpur Panyananda used to come here to Amravati quite often in the, uh, in the 80s. And uh, when we had the, uh, the, uh, um, the opening of Amravati in 85, and then we had the temple opening in 99, then he was the monk leading those ceremonies. And so he was a very close associate of Ajahn Buddhadasa, but uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa was down in the south of Thailand in, in Chaya, um, Suratani province, and uh, Lumpur Panyananda was up near Bangkok in Nantaburi. And so uh, he was much more like the sort of voice of uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa's style of teachings um, in the in the city, and this was a uh, so he's very uh, very prominent as a teacher and as a particularly as a teacher of lay people. So, uh, on uh, you think things are crowded here on a Sunday? You get about two thousand people every Sunday at Wat uh, Chola So uh, the the as, uh, the Bindabat, uh, the alms the alms giving time. There was this sort of horseshoe of uh, where the the, uh, the kind of um, monastic bench was, and you sit there with your bowl, and literally your bowl would be buried under the food offerings so that you know, people would just and it was your job just to sit there and receive so then your bowl would be full and then stacked up around your bowl and then you have this sort of mountain would appear so that you literally you know I was there quite a few times on the weekend and you you, you literally could sort of like see a little bit of your bowl you know a couple of inches here and there but and it was just crazy and then they had this but he, it was very well organized as well because they had this uh, team of um, boy scouts and uh, and the um, these kids and the girl guides and boy scouts who would sort of scurry up behind and take all the extra food away and then they and then he had a, um, a hospital just across the way that he'd built and various uh, schools and charities so all the extra food was sort of funneled uh, pretty much directly off to to those other places but it was it's quite a scene anyway he um, he was very effective uh, and uh, uh, and much appreciated as a teacher and so this element of of uh, doing your duty and carrying out your work with a good heart was a very central principle for him. 
and so it comes to mind in in uh, reading this particular sutta, um, and uh, <coughs> and and he would have there was a phrase that he used which was um, something along the lines of doing your duty is practicing dhamma, uh, dhamma ben nati like the the your, the dhamma the dhamma is your duty your duty is the dhamma, and that obviously they say well, what's my duty though the poor. <laughs> So, but because uh, oftentimes there's this sense that oh, I can't practice because I got this terrible, you know, terrible amount of you know, imposition on my time of all this work I have to do, these people I have to be with, and he and he was uh, like Lumpo Cha and many other of the other great teachers. He he went directly against that and said, no, it's it's not that doing your duty is somehow intruding upon your dhamma practice. It's it's a if you if you handle it, if you have the right attitude towards it. Then carrying out your duty towards your your family, your work, your your living situation, your country, your society, then it 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 is your dharma practice rather than being something that, that interrupts it. And it's a kind of generosity to give your time, your attention. And often when, uh, as I say, at the end of a ten-day retreat, and people are, are talking about how do you carry on the you know, the the practice in in lay life and daily life and. And talking about generosity, more often I talk about generosity of giving your time and your attention rather than writing checks to i mean we do need to pay bills here but <laughs> but in terms of of a practice of generosity, giving your time and giving your attention is is in, is often harder but more useful than than writing a check and um that uh, uh that sense of of uh, caring and, and being involved and giving your your time and attention to your to your job, is uh, it's interesting that the Buddha makes it uh, uh, on an on an equal basis with uh, keeping the sila in a pure way. Know, I, yes, I have a question. Yesterday you finished with this long uh, reading from the sutta where there was a lot of. The five fearful animosities. Yes, and others. Yes. Uh, so, so that it was a long list of what the stream enterer um, understands or penetrates or, or has uh, liberated himself from, or however to call that. And it, the way it was presented, as far as I heard, I don't know whether I heard it it is this and this and this, not all. And now you give an, uh, another example where just the faith in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha and generosity, mm -hmm. or you know, the sila, um, is leading to streaming. Mm -hmm. So I get sometimes confused when people, not, not confused, but um, I, I understood this, this whatever entry you have, mm -hmm. that is then some people say, no, you need all of them. Not at all. No, it's, it's, a, it's any entry point is fine. There's a very, the, one of the most interesting suttas that comes in the next chapter, which hopefully we'll get to. We've only got a couple more readings after this. <laughs> uh, the, about Sarakani, the drunk. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, when the Buddha said Sarakani was a stream enterer, um, and that he was a sort of falling down alcoholic. Uh, and so, how can Sarakani be a, be a stream enterer? The guy was a totally kind of hopeless drunk. And then the, the Buddha goes through this the, this uh, list of characteristics that a stream enterer might have, and uh, it, it, and it's uh, it's quite startling. Um, it's uh, in the next chapter, and he goes through the um, the in a way the kind of the less and less and less and less requirements. Uh, of what what would constitute someone being worthy of called a stream enterer, and then he he ends up by saying, even if these great sal sal trees like the trees, Mahanama, if they could understand what is well spoken and what is badly spoken, then I would declare these great sal trees to be stream enterers. <laughs> so it, um, it's the it's in the uh, Sotapati Sangyutta, the connected discourses about uh, uh, stream entry, Sutta number twenty four, and that is. Uh, Ajahn Pasana quotes the whole thing here, um, page 329 up to 331, if you want to read it. 
but it's uh, it goes through like it starts off with quite a high standard and it gets less and less and less and less and it's uh, there's so there's a variety of different ways of, of, of phrasing it and so it's not like you've got to have the whole collection and they're just like you can say you know you could be weak in wisdom but, or uh, not so good in concentration but the virtue needs to be perfected but in this one it ends up by saying just being able to understand what is well spoken and what is poorly spoken that just to recognize that's true or that's not true that is indicating enough to say that that one has entered the stream because I mean just I, I was just thinking about Anya Kondanya he entered the stream when he heard the Dhamma Chakra Pavadana so that understood you know, everything mm-hmm. which is subject to arising and subject to ceasing and then it was said that you know, the need to have insight into the dependent origination the 12 aspects and then the Buddha did, didn't even teach the dependent origination. Yeah, exactly. So, so they couldn't quite have detailed insight into that. And even the Kannas, I mean, when, when he was teaching about the five Kannas mm-hmm. in the Anatha Lakana Sutra, they got full enlightenment. But it was not part of the first... Uh, right. Yeah. So, um, obviously, sometimes the way it is... Um, what is it, drawn together in the suttas sounds much more comprehensive than in other parts of the sutta. Yeah, it's uh, all like the when the Sariputta became an arahant listening to the Buddha giving a the talk to Diganaka. Mm-hmm. He wasn't even addressing Sariputta, he was just standing behind him fanning him. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was like overhearing the Dhamma talk while the Buddha was speaking to Diganaka. And so that... Um, but yet the you know, insight arose. So it, there's, there's ma- uh, many, many different entry points that, that people can, can have. But then, then the fruit, uh, the fruit of stream entry would be that you do understand what is not said. So then obviously something happens where the... Yeah, the vision changes. Yeah, yeah the, the, vi- the attitude changes. It might not be articulated. There, there's some, I, I can't name exactly which suitor it is, where there's a, 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 a person hears the teaching or they, and they have this experience, they say, did I just realize enlightenment? Yeah, I think I just understood something. What, what was it that I understood? And they can't actually, like, something just happened. And they can't articulate it. But they know, ooh, that changed. And what was that? And they have to go and check. With the, the, I just had this experience, or the things have really changed in this radical way. Um, what do you think that means? And they say, oh, congratulations, friend, you've realized the fruit of arahatship. Oh, really? Oh, you know, great. Yeah. Oh, thank you, thank you. you know. And so, no, the, the, uh, I don't know if I can track it down, but um, it was a, it's a, a sutta that Ajahn Pasna would, would quote from time to time, that the, the realization has happened, but the thinking faculty and the, 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 you know, the isn't, hasn't sort of come in to say, this is what has happened. And this is what it means in terms of words and concepts. The vision has changed, the, 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 the whole appreciation of the experiential field has changed. But the, 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 the naming faculty of mind hasn't been able to, to glom onto that and, and say, this is just what occurred. And, uh, and, then, it, and then literally the, the person goes to their friends and says, Venerable friends, this has just occurred to me. <laughs> what, what do you think this is that I've experienced? And then, and then also there's a, a nun who goes to Venerable Ananda, Jatila Bhagika, and she goes to Ananda and says, I've had this meditation experience. Um, what, what, does this, what does this mean? And I, Venerable Ananda says, oh, you've realized the fruit of arahantship. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so that... And he wasn't even an arahant when he apparently when he when he said that, but he tells her, oh, that's what that's what that indicates. So that that it's not unprecedented for for people to have had a, a realization but not be able to articulate exactly what what that means or, or to to name precisely what it what it is. Okay, to continue, Let's see if we can get through this chapter today. A discourse given by the Buddha to the quarrelling monks of Kosambi gives a comprehensive description of the results of being established in Dhamma. This is a particularly poignant context for the discussion as 
problems of disharmony within the Sangha, or in society in general, would be solved if people took the Buddha's advice and realized stream entry. The impact of one's views is not confined to the world of ideas. It has, it has implications in one's actions and interactions with the world. Although stream enterers are not freed from defilement, they have attenuated enough that they would never get into the kind of quarrels and strife that happened at Kosumbi. This discourse gives one of the clearest pictures both of what a person aiming at stream entry must wrestle with internally, but also of how one who has entered the stream would interact with the world. This is particularly clear in the Saraniya Dhammas, or memorable qualities, which will be discussed in more detail shortly. So, um, those of you who are not familiar with the, the bickering bhikkhus of Kosumbi, there was a, 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 an argument that grew up between um, two... Uh, <coughs> there was a, a, a monk who was a Dhamma expert and a monk who was a Vinaya expert. And um, the... Uh, <coughs> The, the monk who was the, um, the Dhamma expert um, uh, did something that was a, a minor offense. And then, the, uh, then the, the monk who was the vineyard expert said, um, uh, did you realize that you committed this offense? He said, oh, uh, yeah, I did that, but I didn't realize it was an offense. Yeah, thank you for letting me know. And then, <clears throat> and then the, the monk who was the vineyard expert goes off and tells his friends, this, dumber te- this so-called Dhamma teacher doesn't even know what an offence is and what is not an offence. What kind of a Dhamma teacher is he? Mm-hmm. And so, so then those monks then go to the students of the, uh, of the Dhamma teacher and say, ha, 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 <laughs> yeah, you think your Ajahn is so clever and so, so, so wise, but you know, he doesn't even know what offence is and what, what an offence is not. And so, that, um, <clears throat> so then he says, well, wait a minute, I had this conversation with a vineyard master and he's, you know, and um, and when they had the initial dialogue, <coughs> he said, "Well, if you didn't realize it, in offen- if he, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, he said, well, if you didn't realize it was an offense, then you don't. There's no need to confess it. It's not. It's it's it's, it's negligible." Um, and they said, "Well, before he said it was no. He said it was negligible. It's not. If I didn't realize it was an offense, it's not an offense. And now he says it is an offense. He's a liar." And <coughs> feelings waxed hot, as, they, <laughs> as it says in the account, that, uh, that he's a liar, he's a fraud. You know, and so then it turned into this, this spat. This is the short version. And so this whole um, faction, the, this division of factions grew up in the monastery and they were arguing with each other and blaming each other. And the Buddha was living in the monastery. This was, that has happened at the, um, uh, the, in the... the, um, the uh, Main monastery in in Kosumbi, the um, <coughs> Gositarama in Kosumbi, and uh, which was actually one of the very rare monasteries that was inside the city. But anyway, in the Gositarama, so the Buddha was living there, and so he kept going to the different groups, saying, "You know, uh, you know, arguments uh, you know, in the sangha are very unskillful. Please, you settle your differences. You know, encourage them to to find ways to." To settle their their differences of opinion and to apologize, and to even if you you uh, you see that you've done no wrong, it's a good thing to do to to say well if I haven't even if I haven't done any wrong or if I have done wrong, please forgive me. But um, they uh, they carry on with their argument, and eventually um, <coughs> one of them, uh, after the Buddha tries many times to to get them to to um, drop it and to reestablish harmony. One of the uh, the monks says to the Buddha, um, "Please, venerable sir, just you you just abide at ease. We'll we'll, you know, we'll, we'll look after this. Like, Ajahn, please go away, Ajahn. You know, we'll take care of this. Go back to your kuti and we'll look after it. You know, just don't bother us." So then the Buddha came to the conclusion: these monks are incorrigible, <laughs> and so without telling anybody, without taking an attendant, he packed up his bowl and his robes and walked out the next morning. Left them. So then the good people of Kosumbi, uh, realizing that the Buddha had departed because of the bickering bhikkhus, then they stopped offering alms food <laughs> to those aforementioned bickering bhikkhus, and that's what got the message through eventually. That if they have a fully enlightened Buddha in their monastery, they wouldn't listen, but when they're grumbling bellies and saying, we're not getting any food here, we should, we should do something about this. And so uh, anyway, this, uh, um, uh, this, this comes from the Kosambiya Sutta, uh, which was um, took place at uh, in Kosambi, Gosita Rama, 
and it's Sutta number 48 of the uh, Majjhima Nikaya. So, and again, it's, it's, uh, it has, he has been talking about the Saranya Dhammas, the six memorable qualities. Of these memorable qualities, the highest, most comprehensive, the most conclusive is this view that is noble and emancipating and leads the one who practices in accordance with it to the complete destruction of suffering. Just as the highest, the most comprehensive, the most conclusive part of a pinnacle building is the pinnacle itself, so too, of these six memorable qualities, the highest is this view that is noble and emancipating. And how does this view, this ditty, which is noble and emancipating, lead the one who practices in accordance with it to the complete destruction of suffering? Then the Buddha goes into the explanation of, of this in, in an extended way. Here a bhikkhu, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, considers thus. Is there any obsession, unabandoned in myself, that might so obsess my mind that I cannot know or see things as they actually are? And an obsession is a gaha, G-A-H-A, gaha. And the word gaha comes from being grabbed by a demon and carried off. So it's <clears throat> being sort of abducted. So like when we so like in the English expression being carried away, same same. So the the gaha is like the mind has been carried away by something. I got carried away. Like yeah, a demon grabbed you and carried you away. <clears throat> if a bhikkhu is obsessed by sensual lust, then his mind is obsessed. If he is if he is obsessed by ill will, then his mind is obsessed. If he's obsessed by sloth and torpor then his mind is obsessed. If he is obsessed by restlessness and remorse, then his mind is obsessed. If he is obsessed by doubt, then his mind is obsessed. If a bhikkhu is absorbed in speculation about this world, then his mind is obsessed. If a bhikkhu is absorbed in speculation about the other world, then his mind is obsessed. If a bhikkhu takes to quarrelling and brawling and is in deep and is deep in disputes, stabbing others with verbal daggers, then his mind is obsessed. He understands thus, there is no obsession unabandoned in myself that might so obsess my mind that I cannot know and see things as they actually are. My mind is well disposed for awakening to the truths. This is the first knowledge attained by him that is noble, supramundane, not shared by ordinary people. So that you go to your meditation place, your kuti or your room, and, or to the meditation place and say, yeah, uh, is there any obsession that is uh, unabandoned? And then uh, through that, that set of reflections then comes to the conclusion, there is no obsession unabandoned in myself. Again, a noble disciple considers thus, when I pursue, develop, and cultivate this view, do I obtain internal serenity? Do I obtain stillness? He understands thus, when I pursue, develop, and cultivate this view, I obtain internal serenity. I personally obtain stillness. This is the second knowledge attained by him that is noble, supramundane, not shared by ordinary people. Again, a noble disciple considers thus. Is there any other recluse or Brahmin outside the Buddha's dispensation possessed of a view such as I possess? He understands thus. There is no other recluse or Brahmin outside the Buddha's dispensation possessed of a view such as I possess. This is the third knowledge attained by him that is noble, supramundane, and not shared by ordinary people. Again, a noble disciple considers thus, do I possess the character of a person who possesses right view? What is the character of a person who possesses right view? This is the character of a person who possesses right view. Although he may commit some kind of offence for which a means of rehabilitation has been laid down, still he at once confesses, reveals, and discloses it to the teacher or to wise companions in the holy life, and, having done that, he enters upon restraint for the future. Just as a young, tender infant lying prone at once draws back when he puts his hand or his foot on a live coal, on like a hot coal burning piece of wood, so too that is the character of a person who possesses right view. He understands thus, I possess the character of a person who possesses right view. This is the fourth knowledge attained by him that is noble, supramundane, not shared by ordinary people. Again, a noble disciple considers thus, do I possess the character of a person who possesses right view? 
What is the character of a person who possesses right view? This is the character of a person who possesses right view. Although he may be active in various matters for his companions in the holy life, yet he has a keen regard for training in the higher virtue, training in the higher mind, and training in the higher wisdom. Just as a cow with a new calf, while she grazes, watches her calf, so too that's the character of a person who possesses right view. He understands thus, I possess the character of a person who possesses right view. This is the fifth knowledge attained by him that is noble, supramundane, not shared by ordinary people. So those, those two, so if one commits an offence or does something that is inappropriate, then the, the mind is alert to that, just as a, like a, a young child would withdraw their hand as soon as they touched a, a hot coal uh, you know, automatically, then they would um, make, uh, make uh, confession or make recompense for that, that uh, offensive action or speech. Um, and similarly, if uh, this, uh, this phrase, um, uh, though may, being active in various matters for his companions in the holy life, so if you are the um, monastery uh, kitchen manager or you're um, the uh, secretary for the English Sankar Trust or <laughs> you're the guest nun or the work monk or you know, you've got some kind of particular duty that is, is your thing, but um, and that your that's your your job or your role. Still, you uh, if you're um, practicing wisely, then you're still even though you're active in various matters for companions in the holy life, yet you still have a keen regard for training in higher virtue, in higher mind, and wisdom, so that you don't let your job as the work monk over over rule your not just the <laughs> independent on purpose. I know you're the chithouse work monk, right? <laughs> So um, that uh, <clears throat> you don't let that overshadow the fact that you need to meditate, you need to uh, keep the precepts, and you need to you know, follow the routine and so forth, which it was probably happening in the Buddha's time just as it happens nowadays. <laughs> Last two and a half thousand years, uh, uh, various members of monastic communities have got over-obsessed with their particular roles and activities. So then it goes on to say, <clears throat> again, a noble disciple considers thus, do I possess the strength of a person who possesses right view? What is the strength of a person who possesses right view? This is the strength of a person who possesses right view. When the Dhamma and discipline proclaimed by the, the Tathagata is being taught, he heeds it, gives it attention, engages it with all his mind, hears the Dhamma as with eager ears. He understands thus, I possess the strength of a person who possesses right view. This is the sixth knowledge attained by him that is noble, supramundane, not shared by ordinary people. Again, a noble disciple considers thus, do I possess the strength of a person who possesses right view? What is the strength of a person who possesses right view? This is the strength of a person who possesses right view. When the Dhamma and discipline proclaimed by the Tathagata is being taught, he gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. He understands thus, I possess the strength of a person who possesses right view. This is the seventh knowledge attained by him that is noble, supramundane, not shared by ordinary people. When a noble disciple is thus possessed of seven factors, he has well sought the character for realization of the fruit of stream entry. When a noble disciple is thus possessed of seven factors, he possesses the fruit of stream entry. As was mentioned above, right view does not just confine itself to having correct ideas and intentions. Conduct is necessarily affected. And the lives of, uh, of Sotapanas are exemplary. These Saranya Dhammas uh, are standards of conduct by which Sotapanas would tend to live. The term Saranya Dhammas is variously translated as, quote, principles of cordiality or states of conciliation or virtues for fraternal living. These are considered intrinsic to a Sotapanna, as the last quality states that a person endowed with these qualities would, quote, possess the view that is noble and emancipating. So the Saranya Dhammas, they are you know, noble qualities that um, I say are the causes for um, uh, fraternity, a fellowship, the sense of, of community harmony and um, friendship, conciliation, so, so repairing broken friendships or uh, trust that has been uh, disturbed or damaged, um, 
so that uh, that's uh, I say a way of um, conducing and establishing a quality of harmony and mutual respect. These memorable qualities, if followed, would allow the Sangha or any society to live in concord. In the following passage, the Buddha is encouraging the monks to consider the difference between their conduct and that of one who has entered the, the stream of Dhamma. And this is from the Book of the Sixes, um, and it spells out these six saraniya dhammas. There are, O monks, these six principles of cordiality that create love and respect and conduce to helpfulness, to non-dispute, to concord and to unity. What six? So this is why he was spelling them out to the bickering bhikkhus of Kosambi, because uh, they were kind of lost in their, their opinions and they're uh, absorbed in their own rightness and their own conflict. So this is um, one of the things he's been talking about, uh, trying to settle their disputes. So the first one. Here, a monk maintains bodily acts of loving-kindness both in public and in private towards his fellow monks. This is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect. Again, a monk maintains verbal acts of loving-kindness both in public and in private towards his fellow monks. This too is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect. <coughs> Again, a monk maintains mental acts of loving-kindness, both in public and in private, towards his fellow monks. This too is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect. So this is so um, acts of loving-kindness, words of loving-kindness and thoughts, so that even if you're polite, um, if they say, oh, good morning, venerable, how are you today? And you're being polite verbally, you might think, that bloody idiot in the panya, what a fool, you know, can't stand him. You know, that you're, that's not maintaining mental... I'm just using it as an example. That um, you're, you're not uh, maintaining mental acts of loving-kindness. And it's very easy to maintain a veneer of, sort of politeness or appropriate conduct, but be carrying around all kinds of uh, negative thoughts about your... Uh, your companions and so this obviously doesn't just operate within the monastery it operates within the workplace within families um, probably more important in families than many, many other places uh, and so that um, these are, are uh, say the first three of these principles of, of cordiality of the Saraniya Dhammas then the next three um, again a monk uses things in common with his virtuous fellow monks Without making reservations, he shares with them any righteous gain that has been righteously obtained, including even the contents of his bowl. Uh, this too is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect. So that sharing what you have, you know, sharing the things that, that you own, and as you said, the contents of your bowl, even if you are on the arms, uh, on the arms round, or if you're... If, uh, I mean, it doesn't really work in quite the same way here, where people can help themselves off the, uh, off the servery, but maybe... Maybe one of the nuns has noticed, oh, well, I got the last uh, cream donut. See, Sister Kamika got the last, and she realized, oh, I took the last cream donut, and Anagarika Sutisa really likes cream donuts. Maybe I could share. Maybe I, liked, I could offer her this cream donut. I didn't think about it, but uh, I was just sort of, uh, <coughs> my, I was not really paying attention. Let me share this with Anagarika Sutisa. I have no particular knowledge of Sudhisar's like <laughs> relationship to donuts at all. So I'm just randomly using an example. So then it's like sharing, that's what it means, sharing the contents of your bowl. There's a very, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in Thailand, the, the, the late Supreme Patriarch, um, Somdet Nyana Sangwon, was a very, very highly regarded and um, respected monk and uh, he, he lived most of his, his time in Bangkok or what anyway um, but he had a great respect for, for forest ajans and, uh, and so that he would uh, often go up into the particularly northeast of Thailand and go and visit various uh, friends and, and elders of the forest monks and um, there's a wonderful picture and so he's the, he's the supreme patriarch and he's, go, he's gone to visit um, uh, Ajahn Tate, who was one of Ajahn Mun's disciples. And they're both like in their late 80s or 90s. And they're both these kind of highly esteemed, um, uh, revered monks. And there's this wonderful picture of uh, Sandet Nyana Sangwon handing a sweet. They're kind of both of them sitting there with their bowls in front of them. And he's kind of handing a sweet 
to Ajahn Tate and say, you didn't get one of these, you know. <laughs> so they're, they're both these kind of, sort of hyper-exalted monks, and, uh, and yet they're still thinking, oh, did, did you get one of these? These are really good, you know. <laughs> Uh, and it was in uh, Ajahn Tate was uh, he lived in Nongkai province and uh, so he he uh, his main monastery was called Hinmak Peng and he uh, but he uh, he got so many visitors he was such a famous uh, forest Ajahn and so well respected as a teacher that the place was sort of overrun with visitors every day so he moved to this um, t- little branch monastery uh, up in the uh, up in the hills and you you could you had to walk half a mile up a steep path from where you could get a vehicle so that uh, anybody who wanted to go and see him really had to work to get there and so it was in this cave monastery there was a a, 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 um, a tamarind tree growing from the floor of the, of the cave up through the hole in the roof so it was called the tamarind cave monastery and uh, so it was in there so the two of them sitting in this in this cave with the the, the uh, their bowls in front of them and Sondet Nyana Sangwon giving a a cookie to agitate so that they were practicing the Saranya numbers. So then, number five. Again, a monk dwells both in public and in private, possessing in common with his fellow monks virtues that are unbroken, untorn, unbe- unblemished, unmottled, freeing, praised by the wise, unadhered to, not clung to, uh, leading to concentration. This too is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect. So if everyone's following the same standards of conduct, everyone's following the same rules, you, you're all respecting the same discipline, that also is a great uh, a conducive um, support to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, har- community harmony, that, that if everyone's following the, uh, the, the same standards. And, uh, because as soon as someone isn't, then that is a, a cause of, of discord and confusion. Is <laughs> a friend of yours once had that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know somebody that happened to, right? You, you, want, you don't want to let the other person know, but you know that it's Well, there are many and various ways to work with that. One is just to let somebody else know. So if, I, if I've if i got a, a, a gripe against Ajahn Jitapala and she's managed to peeve me, I'm peeved with some aspect of Ajahn Jitapala, then uh, it might help me to, to speak about that. But if I then speak to to one of the other sisters to uh, and say, um, I've been carrying around this this gripe against Ajahn Chitapala and I'm not happy about this. So, yeah. And it's because of this, this and this. So I just wanted to, to, to talk about that because uh, I don't want to carry this around and I don't want to be bearing this, this grudge. Um, so I just wanted to, to let somebody know. And it wouldn't necessarily have to be another nun. It could be another monk or something, you know, that you to a friend, so that you're able to put it into words, what you're feeling, but you're, it's not like a, a making it as an attack or, a, or something that's going to be very awkward for another person. And my experience is nine times out of ten, just putting it into words and say, just to say, <coughs> to crystallize it that, well, what is it that is annoying? And, uh, or why am I upset? Or why do I feel hurt? Or whatever. And then just the act of putting it into words and expressing it, and then also um, uh, what's what's valid in it will show itself, and what is foolish in it <laughs> will show itself. And uh, <clears throat> and often the um, that just saying it in that way is uh, is enough to sort of take the take the steam out of it. Also, what what can happen is that <clears throat> that person then casually mentions it. You know, Ajahn Amro's been carrying around this this uh, this gripe 
that he's been upset with you and such. She's like, oh yeah, he was looking kind of weird the other day. And he gave me that look. I wonder what that was about. And then, oh well, thank you for letting me know. And then, and then it can be sort of uh, worked out, not through a confrontation, but uh, you can it can create a way that uh, somebody knows. Oh, well, so and so is upset, or they they uh, there's there's some. Uh, the air needs to be cleared about that particular issue or, or that um, they didn't feel that they were heard or whatever it might be. Quite often there's a feeling of guilt when you talk about somebody. I often have that feeling of guilt or being negative. Well, if you, the, if you talk about your feelings, you yeah. say, I mean, like, like I, I said, so I would say, I've got this gripe about Ajahn Jutapala and I don't, want, I, I don't like that. Yeah. It's, it's not her, it's me. <laughs> So you're not saying she should be different, but like I, I've, my mind has is, is got hold of this thing and is carrying it around, and, and so I don't feel comfortable with that unskillfulness. So you're, you're taking responsibility. You're not making any assumption about where they're at or what they meant or what, what, they're, what they're doing, but you're, you're recognizing, I've got this, this, this thing that, I, you know, that is bugging me. And um, so you're taking responsibility for your own feelings and not making presumption presumptions about where somebody else is at. <clears throat> so then the last one of the six is, uh, again, a monk dwells both in public and in private, possessing in common with his fellow monks the view that is noble and emancipating and that leads to one who acts in accordance with it to the complete destruction of suffering. So in a, in a sense, this that, that phrase there is a preface to that whole previous reading. That was, if you remember... That began with, how does this view that is noble and emancipating lead to one who practices in accordance with it to the complete destruction of suffering? So that all that um, previous reading was sort of following along from Saraniya Dhamma number six. Also, um, a, 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 another explanation or a, a, a kind of comment on that is that that the insight that is noble and liberating is essentially the, the insight into Anicca. That that's the uh, impermanence and uh, uncertainty. That is the insight that's noble and, and liberating. This too is a, uh, a principle of cordiality. So if everyone in the monastery is uh, developing the anicca sanya, then they'll be able to witness the impermanent nature of their opinions and views and feelings and, and won't carry them around or take them also personally. This too is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect. These monks are the six principles of cordiality that create love and respect and conduce to helpfulness, to non-dispute, to concord and to unity. The next example expresses the qualities of a sotapanna in the negative, i.e. what he or she would avoid entirely. Wrong views of reality and any misconduct which would bring irreversible results, such as rebirth in the lowest realms stemming from these, quote, five heinous crimes. Unquote. The phrase possessing right view, quote unquote, is a synonym for stream enterer. So, this is, uh, this is a reading from the Middle Length Discourses, Majima 115, which is the um, many kinds of elements, the Bahu Dataka Sutta. But, Venerable Sir, in what way can a bhikkhu be called skilled in what is possible and what is impossible? Here, Ananda, a bhikkhu understands, it is impossible, it cannot happen, that a person possessing right view could treat any formation as permanent. There is no such possibility. And he understands, it's possible that an ordinary person might treat some formation as permanent. There is such a possibility. He understands... It is impossible, it cannot happen, that a person possessing right view could treat any formation as pleasurable. There is no such possibility. And he understands it is possible that an ordinary person might treat some formation as pleasurable. There is such a possibility. He understands it is impossible, it cannot happen, that a person possessing right view could treat anything as self. There is no such possibility. And he understands it is possible that an ordinary person might treat something as self. There is such a possibility. He understands it's impossible, it cannot happen that a person possessing right view could deprive his mother of life. There is no such possibility. 
and he understands it's possible that an ordinary person might deprive his mother of life. There is such a possibility. He understands it's impossible. It cannot happen that a person possessing right view could deprive his father of life, could deprive an arahant of life. There is no such possibility. And he understands it's possible that an ordinary person might deprive his father of life or might deprive an arahant of life. There is such a possibility. He understands it is impossible, it cannot happen, that a person possessing right view could, with a mind of hate, shed a Tathagata's blood. There is no such possibility. And he understands it's possible that an ordinary person might, with a mind of hate, shed a Tathagata's blood. There is such a possibility. He understands it's impossible, it cannot happen, that a person possessing right view could cause a schism in the Sangha, like deliberately cause a, a division in the Sangha. Uh, or could acknowledge another teacher. There's no such possibility. And he understands it's possible that an ordinary person might cause a schism in the Sangha, might acknowledge another teacher. There is such a possibility. The last section of the Eightfold Path, i.e. right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration, pertains to the practice of meditation. We will now briefly consider one aspect of this part of the training and its relationship to stream entry. So there's a, a long quote here, uh, it's just after seven, so I'll just I'll read this through just to finish this chapter and offer this for consideration. In this following sutta, the Buddha points out that there is a possibility that Sotapanas might not be diligent or might be lax in their training at times. Not looking at anybody in particular. This is obviously not the standard that the Buddha encouraged, but it is helpful to recognize what the mind still harboring defilements is capable of, so that it is not a source of discouragement and for the arousing of appropriate antidotes. So this is from, again, from the Sotapati Vaga, the Connected Discourses about Stream Entry. <clears throat> On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling among the Sakyans at Kapilavatu in Nigroda's Park. Then Nandia, the Sakyan, approached the Blessed One paid homage to him, sat down to one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, when the four factors of stream entry are completely and totally non-existent in a noble disciple, what would that noble disciple be one who dwells, sorry, would that noble disciple be one who dwells negligently? Nandia, I say that one in whom the four factors of stream entry are completely and totally absent is an outsider, one who stands in the faction of worldlings, quote-unquote. So those four factors, that's sapurisa sangseva, association with superior people, uh, dhamma savana, listening to the true dhamma, uh, yoni so manasikara, um, wise reflection, and practicing dhamma in accordance with dhamma, dhamma anu dhamma patipada. But Nandia, as to how a noble disciple is one who dwells negligently and one who dwells diligently, listen to that and attend closely. I will speak. Yes, Honorable Sir, Nandia the Sekian replied. The Blessed One said this. And how, Nandia, is a noble disciple one who dwells negligently? Here, Nandia, a noble disciple possessed of confirmed confidence in the Buddha, thus, the Blessed One is a teacher of devas and humans, the Enlightened One, the Blessed One. Content with that confirmed confidence in the Buddha, he does not make further effort for solitude by day, nor for seclusion at night. When he, dealt, when he dwells thus negligently, there is no gladness. When there's no gladness, there's no rapture. When there's no rapture, there is no tranquility. When there's no tranquility, he dwells in suffering. The mind of one who suffers does not become concentrated. When the mind is not concentrated, phenomena do not become manifest. Because phenomena do not become manifest, he's reckoned as, quote, one who dwells negligently. And then uh, uh, F.L. Woodward's translation of this in an earlier uh, um, translation of the Sangyuta, he said uh, one, uh, sorry, uh, Woodward's translation was, owing to the teachings being obscure to him, he is reckoned as one who dwells negligently. Again, Nandia, a noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Dhamma, in the Sangha, and he possesses virtues dear to the noble ones, unbroken, leading to concentration. Content with those virtues, and so also content with the faith in the Dhamma and the Sangha, content with those virtues, Dear to the noble ones, he does not make further effort for solitude by day, nor for seclusion at night. When he thus dwells negligently, there is no gladness. 
Because phenomena do not become manifest, he is reckoned as one who dwells negligently. It is in this way, Nandia, that a noble disciple who is uh, sorry, it is, in, it is in this way, Nandia, that a noble disciple is one who dwells negligently. And how Nandia is a noble disciple, one who dwells diligently. Here, Nandia, a noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha. Thus, the blessed one is teacher of devas and humans; the enlightened one, the blessed one. Not content with that confirmed confidence in the Buddha, he makes further effort for solitude by day and for seclusion by night. When he thus dwells diligently, gladness is born. When he is gladdened, rapture is born. When the mind is uplifted by rapture, the body becomes tranquil. When tranquil in body experiences happiness, the mind of one who is happy becomes concentrated. When the mind is concentrated, phenomena become manifest. Because phenomena become manifest, he is reckoned as, quote, one who dwells diligently. Again, Nandia, a noble disciple, possesses confirmed confidence in the Dhamma, in the Sangha, possesses virtues dear to the noble ones, unbroken, leading to concentration. Not content with those virtues dear to the noble ones, he makes further effort for solitude by day and for seclusion by, uh, at night. When he thus dwells diligently, gladness is born, and so on and so forth. Because phenomena become manifest, he is reckoned as, quote, one who dwells diligently. It is in this way, Nandia, that a noble disciple is one who dwells diligently. And that phrase, a phenomena become manifest, that's a, a, a different way of saying, you know, understanding the way things are, or the, the, the way that, um, that things work, or the you know, understanding uh, is um, ripening. To complete this section on the relinquishing of the fetters, some leeway will be taken to introduce other aspects of what is let go of, but which do not fall specifically under that category. A passage in the Vinaya states that a Sotapanna relinquishes the four agati, the four biases or prejudices, wrong courses of behavior or prejudices. These are one, chandagati, prejudice caused by love or desire, partiality. Two, dosagati, prejudice caused by hatred or enmity. Three, mohagati, prejudice caused by delusion or stupidity. And four, bhayagati, prejudice caused by fear. Bhikkhu Bodhi writes in one of his footnotes to the Majjhima Nikaya that the ancient Majjhima commentary says that the stream enterer has abandoned samucheda pahana, abandoned by er er abandonment by eradication, has abandoned contempt, a domineering attitude, envy, avarice, deceit and fraud. These are truly important traits of those who have realized Dhamma. The lives of such people are not drawn into the prejudices and biases that would create disharmony and discord in the world and the society in which they live. Then, a very significant sentence he closes the chapter with, a world with more sotapanas would obviously be a different world from the one we live in today. <laughs> I don't think there'd be any argument with that. And uh, also, just to, a little footnote, going back to yesterday's reading, the word animosity, so I looked that up, and it, interestingly enough, it comes just from the word animus in Latin, which means a spirit or, or mind. And um, so uh, the, um, the word animosity comes from animosus, which, means, which originally meant spirited or having courage. And in the early 17th century, its meaning got tweaked to meaning uh, a kind of strong aversion. Or, uh, and so it's one of those words that it started off meaning something else altogether, but its meaning sort of got, uh, got transmuted over time. So then uh, this uh, uh, freedom from the agati, from these biases, from um, desire, uh, aversion, uh, delusion and fear, is also, uh, as, a, uh, as he points out, that the stream enter the, and other qualities of the stream enter that results in is uh, one is giving up contempt, Domineering attitude, envy, and avarice, which means kind of greediness, and uh, deceit and fraud. So that is the end of chapter 18. We'll close it there for today.